Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And we're reading short and deep. A Pail of Air by Fritz Leiber. First published in Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, December 1951. And uh, I don't know if you know this, Eric, but this is one of my favorite science fiction stories. Oh my gosh, then we need to treat it delicately. Oh, yeah. Oh, now I'm worried. But um, I, I think it does a, a number of amazing, uh, amazingly cool things in a very short space. I must say, at your urging, I've read it with care. Uh, I think that one can see this as a number of different stories. Or it is the same story that sort of gets looked at as emphasizing this theme or that theme. Um, how would you see the story? Or what's your first glance at the story? Hmm. Well, it's a story about uh, a family and their struggles to survive on a planet called Earth. Ah, huh. interesting. I see, um, I, I see that that's true. But I thought of it more as a coming-of-age story for the boy who is the narrator. Mm -hmm. um, just so that people who haven't read the story can know what we're talking about, the setup is that we begin with the boy talking, and the whole thing is a first-person narrative, mm -hmm. about having to go outside and get a pail of air. It turns out that the Earth has been ripped out of its solar orbit by a passing dark star, a dead star, if you will. And at the time the story is set, it's beyond the orbit of Pluto. Uh, it gets very little sunlight from Sol. Uh, just our sun looks like a big star, we're told. And in the course of the cataclysm that led to the current situation, the Earth has been covered by uh, layers of solid. First, the water precipitates out of the atmosphere, so you get nothing but ice. And then the atmosphere precipitates, in fact, even giving us layers, the, the different gases coming in different layers with the oxygen at the top, which is handy because then if you survive, as this family has, in a makeshift shelter um, that uses up virtually all of the space available inside an apartment so that they, it's covered by layer and layer and layer and layer of blankets and things. But if they put on their makeshift uh, suits and go up five floors, they can take a bucket of solid oxygen, bring it down and uh, keep their fire burning and that warmth uh, thaws out the oxygen and they can live and, and so on in there the boy goes for a bucket of air he sees something strange and we get then a picture of their lives as he ruminates about what things are like and then the strange thing enters into their uh into their home um and then we get to the very end of the story so that's how i'm telling it as a story <laughs> viewed from the boy's standpoint how would you tell it no i think that's that's pretty good the um what I love is that the info dump, right, is not a dump at all. It's it's very well layered into the story. Um, we we see the world from a, 
perspective of a young kid who doesn't know a world like ours. Um, and it is a coming of age story. You're right. But uh, also um, a coming of age story for humanity too, I think is the idea so that it's not just him growing up, but humans growing up. And I think by reading this story like this, we have that kind of sort of experience as well, or we should anyways. One of the things that I like about the story is the uh, very quiet way in which it urges us to acknowledge some of the difficulties of life and and come to glory in them. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at the most root level, the fact that the home in which this boy has spent all of his life, except for the occasional excursion outside to get a pail of air and other such uh, supplies that they scavenge, um, is called the nest. Mm-hmm. And if one thinks in terms of birds, um, a nest is a terrific thing. It's a, it's a nurturing place. It's a place where the chicks and the parents are together. Um, but for life to go on and for the young to enjoy life and to spread their wings, they need to get to the point at which they can leave the nest. They may even have to be pushed from the nest. And there's got to be a kind of sense of loss there, as I think most humans do understand when they finally decide, well, I'm going to go and have a life of my own. Um, This is a story then that acknowledges that the the glorious process of living a full life includes a necessary sense of loss. And one has to somehow come to cherish that loss as a good thing because it contributes to moving forward. I think if, if one reads the, uh, the philosophy of life part of this properly, I mean, I shouldn't say properly, if one reads the, the in the way that I've just suggested, then the dead star that pulled the earth away from Saul and has now got it moving out past the uh, orbit of Pluto and continuing to go, um, that dead star perhaps shouldn't be looked upon as an unmitigated disaster because it, in fact, led to the powerful formation of an incredibly tight mutually supportive family, the one we see in the nest. And when we finally see other human beings find them at the end, that's what had been noticed, although unwittingly, um, by our hero, our protagonist, when he goes up to get the pail. Um, Maybe the earth is not worse off for having been forced out of its warm nest, because in fact, we come to learn the entire lifetime that our narrator knows, and at the very end we find out he's just 10 years old, his entire lifetime has been spent in the nest wondering about this marvelous thing, the sun, which he's never been able to see, oceans of water rather than frozen stuff, just in fantastic ideas. Mm -hmm. But, But these new people who come to them, who find them, and are wearing perfectly serviceable suits that protect them against the environment. They come from Los Alamos where they (laughs) have managed to establish a thriving city by using the energy and almost limitless supply. It seems of 
the radioactive materials that had been provided for bombs. So by having the Earth, by a dead star, pulled away from Sol, in fact, a new life has begun for humanity, a life that does not involve war, but in fact involves mutual aid. This is a spreading of the wings. So I, I think I'm agreeing with you very much that it's a coming of age, not just for, for the boy. It's a coming of age for humanity. But coming of age in 1951, when the United States is uh, deep into the era of atomic warfare, and the Cold War is uh, very much on the minds of Americans and those likely to read galaxy science fiction, in a way, this gentle story about a boy finding the possibility of going to a, a better, bittersweet, but nonetheless desirable future really is a challenge to us. Can we, current humans in 1951, find a better future without blowing ourselves up first? Or does it de depend upon a divine act of the universe to come in and make our current way of life untenable? Um, so the story is a, a good challenge as well, I think, as a, a comforting tale of growing, of coming of age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just love, you know, it, it's right in the title, A Pail of Air, right? It takes you from, you know, down on the farm, go out for a pail of water, and it, that's where they are at the beginning. And by the end of the story, they're star travelers, right, <laughs> practically, Um Colonize, recolonizing the Earth in places that were previously uninhabitable, Slave Lake, Northwest Territories, right? It's, right. it's it, it, in a way, it's it feels kind of like um, the chrysalids, uh, except that's a, a, a little less gentle than this is, um, and yet this is um, this is a even more radically transformed Earth. Right there, they at least have air and running water and sunlight. Um, here, all they've got is a bucket. I love that the bucket of the title, the pail of air, isn't just a bucket that he goes out and gets, and that they you know keep the, behind the curtains for when they need more air in their nest. But it's also the bucket on his head. Right, his spacesuit is a bucket. <laughs> it's a clear bucket that allows him to see out into the world, keep the air in so that he has something to breathe. It's a pail of air on his head as well as in his hand. Right. And, and in a sense, that becomes a metaphor for life on Earth. Completely. We're, all living, we're, we're just living, living in a pail of air. We're lit, living at the bottom of a bucket of air. Right. It's amazing, right? And it, that little simple thing, you know, going out for a pail of water, which is something... No, I, I hope most people get an experience with sometime um, is is such a simple and amazing concept for, uh, as you say, a metaphor for um, our existence. And the fact that, you know, we don't even have an atmosphere or running water or anything, and it doesn't stop humanity from living and adapting is uh, the most optimistic kind of science fiction that you know, will get people to go into outer space and go visit the moon for, you know, several weekends in the 1960s and 70s. Uh -huh. Right. 
the the opening uh, sets up that term pail of air uh, it also sets up this notion of exploration because uh <clears throat> the language reminds us not only of the uh the farm activity or the traditional farm activity of going out and getting a, a pail of air, uh, go out to the pump and bring it back in. Mm-hmm. But, but of the whole idea of settling the world, Pa had sent me out to get an extra pail of air. I just about scooped it full and most of the warmth had leaked from my fingers when I saw the thing. You know, at first I thought it was a young lady. Yes, a beautiful young lady's face. Uh, and then it goes on about what he sees. Uh, I dropped the pail. Who wouldn't, knowing everyone on earth was dead, except Pa and Ma and Sis and you, meaning he's talking to himself, um, unless he is ultimately telling the story to someone else once later he finds there are other human beings, so not everyone on earth is dead. Pa and Ma and Sis. In fact, there's only one personal name given in the whole story, given only once, and it's given by the mother who calls the father by name once she realizes that there are other people in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are known in this story by the narrator. They are known um, by these homely names that we normally associate with uh, farmers, but pioneer farmers. When the infrastructure is still so low and the population distribution is so wide that people are known by their relationship rather than their names, pa, ma, and sis. We can find other things from this as well. Um, This is a a unit that is bearing children. The fact that um, the boy is called son by the father and the girl is called Sis, lets us know, and there are other facts in the story as well that confirm this, that the boy is older than his sister. Mm-hmm. We know that Ma and Pa didn't have children until after the great cataclysm occurred. So in fact, having children is an act of faith in the future. The father mm-hmm. consciously thinks about it. So first the boy is born, then the girl is born, As soon as there is someone else, the beautiful young lady who's mentioned already in the second paragraph as a possibility, then you need names because, you know, son and sis can't procreate together. Mm -hmm. Biologically, they could, but they are not supposed to. Um, So what do settlers do? I mean, they've got to find other people. But to do so, you have to leave the nest. Writing it this way. What Liber has done, I think, is activate all of those persistent myths of the Old West, the unpopulated landscape or very little populated landscape in which families need to cling together to survive. But if the reason of survival is the promulgation of their culture, their race, um, they need to find others and split off. So he's made this story in space hook into the values that Americans like to feel uh, has to do with their past. 
you know, we don't like to think about genocide of Native Americans. We, you know, we like to think of the landscape as empty. And we went out there and we were brave. And what we had to deal with were the elements, not the Indians. Uh, so Liber is cleaning this up a lot to make this a coming of age of the culture as well as a coming of age of the boy and giving us um, a chance to, to get a nice, happy thought about the importance of tolerating the bitterness that comes with growing up and going on. Uh, by the way, uh, I think your connection of this story to the chrysalids, uh, which is a terrific John Wyndham novel, which these days I think might be classified as a young adult novel, although mm -hmm. it wasn't published as such when it came out because that category didn't exist. Uh, for those of us who are Native Americans, I mean to say United Statesians, um, it's important to remember it's called Rebirth in America. The British title is The Chrysalids. So if anybody wants to find that parallel, which I think is an excellent one, um, they need to know that Wyndham's novel is Rebirth here in the U.S. Yeah, the metaphor there is a butterfly, right? And here the metaphor is just, you know, getting your, your flight wings. Indeed. And both of them, you, complete change. Uh, I think for the boy um, here, the change is not uh, getting wings. The change is puberty. Mm -hmm. um, there are all kinds of subtle hints here about uh, his embarrassment about uh, a beautiful young lady. Um, he's only seen them in magazines. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, those magazines are probably uh, just ordinary good housekeeping and such, you know, with just attractive <laughs> models. Well, because this is December 51 and Playboy is comes out its first issue in December 53. Uh, and from what we know about Pa in this story, he's not liable to keep pornography around. So <laughs> the only just standard magazines you could find in 51 would be pictures that would have just, you know, beautiful young ladies, models in it. But when he sees them, uh, when he sees an actual beautiful young lady, he gets very embarrassed. Um, sis, we're told, is too young to think of as a young lady. And Ma is really in horrible shape physically. Um, and the young lady that he has seen in the apartment building at a higher floor, frozen by the original cataclysm, is certainly in no way appealing. So when he finally sees a living, beautiful young lady, you know, things get to him. Um, now, of course, she's uh, quite a, an important person. She's the leader, apparently, of this group of three who come in to the nest. And uh, when he says, the boy, to his father, wow, you know, maybe we'll go to these cities and we'll see things, but I'll, I'll be a little afraid. It's not going to be easy to leave the nest the father says, you'll quickly get over that feeling, son. Um, and then we will be in the you in the beginning. So there's a, a religious aspect to this as well. Then the last paragraph following that in the beginning, I guess he's right. That is, the son is saying about his father. Do you think the beautiful young lady will wait for me till I grow up? I'll be 20 in only 10 years. Yeah. So, you know, his embarrassment, uh, the mother calling out in fright when she sees something move through a slit in the 
blankets. I mean, the, the sexual imagery um, is there, but it's subtle. Um, the, the boy uh, describes the layers of gases as being like a pus, a pussy cafe, cafe. Pussy cafe, yeah. That's how he spells it. Uh, it's of course a reference to something that is pretty darn rare, pus cafe, which is uh, a French dessert drink, with layers of liqueur of different colors. So you can sip through the different liqueurs through the different layers. But if you call it a pussy cafe, um, it certainly does seem like a place where an adolescent boy can indulge his uh, burgeoning prepubescent uh, fa- fantasies. I think there's a so really... That's un- right. When I say coming of age, I, I don't mean to make a pun on coming. Uh, I mean <laughs> that, that it really is going from from the period of, of what Erickson calls latency. I mean, it's really... He's thinking about just getting past this next social stage. And in that regard, the story is like a male version of Little Red Riding Hood. Huh. Well, I mean, think about it. Little Red Riding Hood, um, the danger place is going between the city where her mother lives and the the home in the forest where the grandfather lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, the grandmother lives. In between is the forest. In this story, we start out in the the house in the woods with the family. Of course, the woods is this frozen earth. And we later find out there's actually a city. And the problem is getting from one to the other. The place of danger is the, the in-between space. And then the in-between space, Little Red Riding Hood, um, is told by the wolf to stop posting along and look at the flowers. She sees them and is immediately attracted to them. And then we're told in, at least in the translation that I favor, uh, uh, that she gathered them until her arms were too full to hold any more. So she gets these sex organs of plants and holds them up. And then when she can't indulge this anymore, she goes to uh, grandmother's house. We have the famous... Uh, eating of the grandma and grandpa and grandma and, and red by the wolf. Um, but then the hunter thinks, Hmm, maybe there's someone in there. So let's open the belly. Red comes out. And at the end, she says, I will never go into the forest again as long as my mother forbids it. So what red has learned is, you know, this attraction, this, the, the wolf, right? The, the wolf who's out there, um, who makes nature appealing. Um, yeah, he's right. It is appealing, but you've got to wait till you get to the right time in your life. And of course, what she's wearing on her head, that red riding hood is uh, a sign of, of, of Mark, Right. And as you've pointed out, the pail of air that this guy is taking back to his family, as red has been bringing a basket full of cakes and wine to grandma He's wearing the pail on his head. It's just <laughs> like Red Riding Hood carrying the basket beneath her apron, we're told, and the hood on her head. He's got the pail in his hand of the air and the pail on his head. And when he goes out into his equivalent of the forest, he sees a light in the building across the way. But he immediately thinks, although all he can see is a glint of light, that it might be a beautiful young lady. So the sexual attraction 
to go out into the dangerous landscape, but requiring a strong man to free you from this, but then have time pass until you can yourself go and set up a new family. This is this is a fairy tale. This mm-hmm. is the fairy tale of Little Red Riding Hood, except it's it's little pale riding boy. Um, <laughs> and the, the pail that he's carrying is P-A-L-E as well as P-A-I-L, bringing back a bucket of white air, mm-hmm. frozen oxygen. So as a fairy tale, I think we understand that it feels right. It doesn't have the, uh, the harsh aspects of the genocide against the Native Americans. It doesn't have, except in, frozen, in the frozen past, the, the real difficulties of being in this harsh environment. We don't see any member of the family choking to death. You know, we don't have any sense that they will ever run out of food. They could keep going indefinitely. They would just age. But with aging, inevitably comes puberty. And then what is our narrator to do when the only person liable to become a beautiful young lady is his own sister? Mm-hmm. In comes the solution. You know, uh, I, I, I there's another aspect of this story that I think it ties into this really well. And that's the without the sun, without the light of day, they are stuck in perpetual night. And even though the only danger is 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 freezing to death or you know running out of food or you know running out of coal they still populate that outside night with a, a fear of the blackness and it comes out a couple of times um but i want to read this section i think it's really cool um so this is the boy talking to himself he says What I asked myself, if the frozen folk, those are the people who are living in the apartment building, uh, apartments all around him, the frozen folk were coming to life. What if they were like the liquid helium that got a new lease on life and started crawling towards the heat just when you thought its molecules ought to freeze solid forever? Or like the electricity that moves endlessly when it's just about as cold as that? What if the ever-growing cold, with the temperature creeping down to the last few degrees to the last zero, had mysteriously wakened the frozen folk to life, not warmed life, but something icy and horrible? That was a worse idea than the one about something coming down from the dark star to get us. Or maybe, I thought, both ideas might be true. Something coming down from the dark star and making the frozen folk move. And just skipping ahead here, it says... The frozen folk with minds from the dark star behind their unwinking eyes, creeping, crawling, snuffling their way, following the heat to the nest. So there's this massive fear of the dark and what what could be out there, even though there's no evidence for that. It's 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 creepy enough that, you know, when he goes out looking for canned food, he finds or it doesn't even have to be canned, just food to thaw out and eat, that they find, you know, frozen people stuck in their beds, sitting near the radiator, all the people who died around them and didn't survive in the nest. Then they've got that massive fear. And then what comes is people, light from outside who have used, harnessed this, you know, as you say, a limitless resource of of Los Alamos, you know, the nuclear energy. This is a, such a pro-nuclear 
power story because it says we don't even need the sun, the thing that generates light, uh, generates all power on Earth, right? We don't need that. All we need is some good science and we can conquer the universe, even if the planet freezes to death. I get the sense at the end of this story that this is the beginning of humanity, right? Leaving the nest, as as one uh, writer had put it previously, um, and taking flight into the stars. They're just beginning. This isn't the end. And this ties us back to the story, I think, or stories that I think inspired, you know, if not directly, indirectly, this this story comes from, uh, I think, Jack London's To Build a Fire, which has the exact same predicament, except it's it's only a temporary winter problem for one guy, and he fails to solve it because he wasn't smart enough. The Star by H.G. Wells has the exact same premise. The Earth is dragged away from the sun, and things go awry. There's a big upheaval. You know, places that were habitable are no longer habitable. It's It's a... It's a of the light of science, you know, bright shining can save us from our fears. I, I love this story. I think it's so optimistic SF in sort of the most dire circumstance imaginable. I think you're right. I think uh, that that in part expects to resonate with people's religious beliefs. Um, at the end of uh, the end of Wells's star, the very last line, uh, Martian astronomers are looking down at the Earth, which, as you say, is now uh, further out from the orbit it usually occupies, and so life has moved, migrated to the poles. Um, but the Martians look down and and uh, and see that human life is going on in this new configured environment, despite the fact that. Most of humanity has been killed by this upheaval. And the last line says, which only shows how small the vastest of human catastrophes may seem at a distance of a few million miles. Mm-hmm. What Wells is doing is letting us know about our own unimportance. What Liber is doing um, seems to be that because the boy narrator presents an inimical universe, one that hates humanity. It does this to us. It does that to us. It sends us these zombies that you talk about. But not only do we need science, we need a human being who knows science. And in Mm -hmm. fact, the father is the scientist. The father, um, the father knows, uh, how to make all of these things. And um, what we see at the end, in the last page, is that now, knowing that there will be renewal, the father puts extra coal on the fire, uh, mm-hmm. as if it was one of our birthdays, spoke about rebirth by Wyndham, or Christmas. Mm-hmm. And then, when at the end he says, you know, I'll be growing up, um, the new beginning, um, maybe the time to look at the, the, the biblical reference here is not so much to, uh, to Genesis um, or even, in fact, to the second coming, which has not, of course, happened yet, according to uh, most Christians, but rather the story of Noah, mm-hmm. where the earth has been made 
uninhabitable by a God who legitimately was angry at us. This is 1951. We've blown off atomic weapons. We've killed. We've had this most horrifying war in human history. Um, And we are just now entering into its sequelae. The Korean War is starting up. And instead, we get a scourge. Earth becomes uninhabitable. And then we can go forward. The the archetypal monotheistic God is always the sun. If you go back far enough in any culture that has monotheism. Mm -hmm. And the sun is what we're away from here. But Pa is the guy who understands the sun, tells the stories of the sun, and is the scientist. We can do without God the Father if we can have scientist the Father. That is enormously hopeful, especially if you can make it ring with the myths that underlie all of our culture. But of course, there's always more to say. 